0: On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we're talking about the mood in the Texas Capitol now that we're halfway through the session. Why Dan Patrick has some pot advocates feeling paranoid and how the two Texans running for president are doing. And yes, there are still two. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TripCast sponsors, Texas A&M University, where researchers are helping to prevent disasters like power outages and forest fires. Visit fearlessfront.com to learn how Aggies are shedding light on every front. And the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers stands with Texans statewide who seek access to emergency care without health plan interference. To learn more, visit myemergencymychoice.com. Hello, this is Amon here on Thursday, March 21st with the Texas Tribune TripCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey.
1: Not a paranoid pod advocate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Anymore. Anymore. At this time. <laughs> uh, public education reporter, Aliyah Swaby. Hello. And community reporter, Alex Samuels. Hi there. As always, we take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can, use it, you can do it using the hashtag TripCast. Uh, first up, Monday was day 70 of the 140-day session. Halfway, woo <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's, it's like- gone pretty fast, but I was also out of work for most of it, which was nice. <laughs> yeah, since you were, while you were on vacation. Right? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I mean, they started really slowly this time if you're looking at this in terms of stuff that's gone through committee, stuff that's gone through the House and the Senate floor. But they've actually done a lot of background work. You've been in a lot of those rooms watching school finance mm-hmm. getting knocked around. The House uh, passed a budget out of the Appropriations Committee on Monday. That's a 1,000 pages of not small work. So there's been a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And now we're sort of into the part of the session where the, the public stuff really starts, the public debate and, and and the visible work.
0: We started the session with all these important, powerful people saying, we're all on the same page. We're going to tackle some of the biggest problems impacting the state. How do you fund schools equitably? How do you rein in property taxes? Are they still on the same page? They're in the same library.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, No, I don't think they're on the same page. I think, you know, the... the, um, They've managed, though, I think, to keep it pretty more or less civil. You know, it hasn't exploded. It's not like... um, anyone's like throwing uh, personal jabs at one another. I think the jabs that they're throwing are pretty like, you know, nuanced policy ones. Um, the House Speaker has sort of said that the, the Senate's um, $5,000 pay raise isn't really a plan. Um, and, you know, he would rather give districts flexibility to spend money as they please. And that's, you know, those are two legitimate policy differences <laughs> that you can have, you know, it's not, it's not like a, a nasty fight <laughs> based off of. It's um, not like the bathroom bill, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, I think that's the the main difference about um, the like different pages that they're on this session versus last one.
0: Well, and so, Lee, like, can you talk about what the House did, uh, or House committee did this week? They took a pretty pretty big step forward on school funding.
2: Yeah. So uh, the House um, Public Education Committee passed out a version of their, um, you know, omnibus, almost two hundred page bill on school finance um, that addresses, you know, the base amount that they're putting in per student, which is a significant increase in what they're doing with teacher pay and, um, you know, what they're doing with, um, what they're requiring for uh, property tax reform. So, um, you know, I think it's, it packages in basically everything that they want to do on school district property taxes and, and school finance in one bill.
0: What, so, but what about the merit pay?
2: So they took out a proposal that would um, incentivize school districts to create their own merit pay programs, um, and they just replaced it with a basically a watered down version that says that um, you know there's a fund now for uh, or it, it would create a fund for districts that want to incentivize teachers to go to high need schools or um, to teach in, in rural schools. It's mostly now for you know recruitment more than. Paying your most effective teachers or or rating teachers in any form,
1: but under the House bill, a, a district could still do that, right?
2: Um, I, di- I mean, districts are allowed to right. do whatever they want in so terms Mar- of merit Mar- pay. Is
0: still allowed? Just yeah, it doesn't disallow
2: it. It just yeah, right. It wouldn't fund districts that want to do it right. from from state money.
0: And this was taken out after I was a teachers' that so mm-hmm. Got really upset about it.
2: Yeah, they. have You know, I think. Nationally, you know, they're they're known for for not being in support of mm-hmm. of merit pay, um, and here especially uh, when it would use uh, or you know they think that it would uh, sort of incentivize districts to use the state standardized test to rate teachers. So you know, your star scores could determine how much teachers get, um, and also it means that certain teachers would be getting more than other teachers. You know, they've been saying. Um, Texas is sort of middle of the pack, maybe a little bit less than than average when it comes to teacher pay um, in the country. Um, let's actually pay all of our teachers more before we just start talking about paying certain ones extra money.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, who's the who's the constituency that's really was really pushing for merit pay?
2: So it's it's a mix of people. It's an interesting coalition. You know, I think um, Dallas ISD obviously has been. Um, they're one of the, the main school districts that when you think of merit pay, you think of them because their mm-hmm. program has also been used um, for ACE. So it's like helped turn around some of their uh, low performing schools. And the governor has really touted their uh, merit pay and incentive pay program um, as one that he has wanted to replicate across the state. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of local debate over whether or not it, Actually, is is sustainable long-term for Dallas ISD, or you know what it does for? It was really
1: expensive, wasn't
2: it? It's yeah, it's extremely expensive. The merit pay part and the part where you're trying to get those teachers into the low-performing schools mm-hmm. um, together have cost a lot of money. And so, um, you know, it's something where obviously for Dallas ISD, it makes sense for them to be lobbying for more funding for that. Um, but for tiny rural school districts, um, if you have you know three schools. And one of you only have one high school, one middle school, one elementary school. How are you going to incentivize teachers to move from, you know, your most effective mm. teachers to go from one school to another? Right. You can't really do that.
0: I hadn't thought of that. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so next week is actually my favorite night of the session, uh, budget night in the house. <laughs> wow, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ross, can you talk a little bit about, so it's Wednesday. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how it's shaping up this time and
1: Yeah, so they go in, they've got this 1,000-page budget, and it's the first crack at the budget on the floor of either the House or the Senate. The House is carrying the the lead bill this time. It switches back and forth every session. And they'll go article by article through the budget, You know, sort of as close as they get outside of the Appropriations Committee to a line-by-line reading. They generally have two calendar rules. I think um, I haven't read them this time, but I, I think they're on the regular track. All of the amendments that are proposed for the Wednesday debate have to be in on Sunday so that the uh, people kind of running the debate and figuring all of this out have time to compile them and get them together and figure out what they cost and what they do. And the other one is that you can't add spending to the appropriations bill as it's presented unless you subtract the same amount of spending somewhere else. So if I want to add a dollar for this program, I have to find a program that I'm going to kill for a dollar. So, um, so the net effect on the budget can only be, you can make it smaller You can cut things from the budget and not have to replace them, but you can't add to the budget without um, whacking a like amount. And it takes a while to go through all of that. Some of them are things that people are really um, sincere about after their campaigns, that they really were pitching, I want this program, I want this to happen. It might be merit pay for teachers, it might be something else. You know, it might be highways over here or whatever. and some of them are things where people, it's not that they're not sincere about them, but they really just want to vote. They just want to sh- see a record vote on this thing or that thing or the other. And it goes on all day. Some of it's very low-grade um, legislative grist. Some of it's kind of dramatic and fun. And, and genuine nerds really, really like this day. Come on. Well, I mean, the past few years, it's... Whoever it's, those people are. <laughs> the
0: past few years, it's, it hasn't just gone all day. It's gone till like the morning. It's gone all night.
1: It goes and goes. It's one of those debates that they let go until it's over. Um, when they come back at the end of the session, so the House will pass some version of a budget. The Senate will pass some version of a budget. They'll send it to a conference committee, and the real vote on the budget is at the end of the thing when you're voting on the conference committee thing. Uh, this is an opportunity for members to flag issues that the conference committee and that the Senate ought to pay attention to, you know, they're trying to get attention to, the, to this or that issue. So a lot of the stuff's important, but yeah, it is a long, long, long debate, you know, 12 to 18 hours.
0: And there's drinking involved. And sometimes there's drinking, <laughs> see, sometimes you, there's sleeping. You'll, there,
1: were, there were some members wrapped up in blankets during one of these debates a few years ago, <laughs> you know, kind of
0: napping at the desk. And I've heard lawmakers curse like on the mic. So it's like on record in the house and everyone heard it. Um, I've, there, there was a couple years ago where, where uh, they were, there was a lawmaker talking about how he lost his virginity, and he was getting questions about it. Wow. <laughs> and it was, this was a budget debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it's revealing. Uh, weird <laughs> 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 uh, we have a question from social media for uh, Aliyah. What is the status of the $5,000 across-the-board teacher pay raise?
2: So it's, it's passed out of the, the Senate. Um, it's SB3. Um, it passed out few weeks ago now? A couple mm, weeks ago? A couple
1: weeks, yeah. It seems to go by so fast. Uh, yeah, I don't.
2: Uh, but, you know, it's up to the, um at this point, the House would need to take it up in committee. Um, the chairman of the House Public Education Committee has said repeatedly that he will take it up and mm-hmm. hear it. Um, I don't think it's been um, scheduled for any sort of hearing at this point. Um, I haven't gotten a notification about that, so it's really just waiting for that next step.
0: And it seems like maybe the House is not as enthusiastic about it.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean the the House Speaker has said and and Huberty have both said that they don't want it. (laughs) So (laughs) um, you know, I don't know um exactly what that means for where it will go if they end up taking it in committee, you know, if they just won't take a vote on it and it'll sort of die there, or if they'll force a vote on, on the House floor. I think it's at this point it's unclear, but um, they've made it clear that in terms of the policy, they're not really interested in putting money toward um, an across-the-board raise for teachers. And I think, too, um, in terms of the, the budget proposal, they don't really have the funds for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like the funds for public education mm-hmm. are the, the $6.3 billion that are tied up in, in House Bill 3 and their omnibus school finance bill. Um, so if they want to do, an on, on top of that, do a, a teacher raise, they're going to have to take things out of that bill or or figure out a way to reconcile them.
1: Aren't they also sort of taking the position that there's money for a teacher pay raise and for teachers and librarians and everybody else in the House bill?
2: Right, yeah. Yeah. So they're saying that there's there's enough of an increase in the base pay per student um, for school districts to offer that raise. And, you know, when superintendents went to the, um, the committee hearing on House Bill 3, um, you know, they, they were asked, okay, well, with this extra money you'll be getting, would you be able to offer a raise? And and a few of them said yes. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what they're they're trying to push, um, you know, that this bill does that. It just doesn't force um, money to go just to that and, and, you know, not put money into other things that school districts might want to spend it on.
1: Is that a hill the Senate will die on? I mean, is, if it, if they go back to the Senate without that, is the Senate going to say you know, drop, don't cross this line.
2: Right, I don't, I mean, I think that's what um, the the next, like, real big debate that I'm waiting for is right. um, who's going to die on what, ha- you know, I think they've made it pretty clear um, that they're both on different sides on this, right, and that they can't right. do all of the things that they want to do. I think teachers groups, though, you know, are kind of in the middle in a way that's interesting where they want the base pay per student to increase and they also want directed raises for teachers and there's not the the money for all of those things don't exist (laughs) right
0: uh alex was hoping you could talk a little bit about the story you had this week about um the thing you're now the Texas expert on, which is pot. Oh yes, yeah, marijuana. <laughs>
3: <laughs> My time to shine, <laughs> yes. we, um, that's so, a great answer. What? What?
0: What? So we entered this session with some momentum yes. behind um, expanding medical cannabis. Right now, Texas has this really narrow program that, like, a few hundred people can make use of it. And mm-hmm. it's, if you have, I think, is it intractable? Intractable,
3: epile- ep- oh, intractable epilepsy, which like less than one percent of the state's population has.
0: And what they get is in cannabis oil, which is, doesn't get you high and is, has a very um, low levels of THC, is it? Yes. Okay. So
3: it's a high CBD, low THC product that is available for these Texans with intractable epilepsy. Um, the latest numbers I got from the DPS is that less than 700 Texans currently utilize this oil. So it's a very small percentage of the state's population that currently has
0: it. And so what, in your story, there was something, some news that um, pot advocates were not thrilled to read.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you said, in 2015, we passed the Compassionate Use Act and it was not an easy bill to get across the finish line, but eventually, obviously it did. And now there's some renewed momentum for actually expanding the Compassionate Use Act, whether that means just expanding the number of conditions that qualify for CBD THC products, or whether it's, um, you know, Senator Donna Campbell has a bill that would allow any Texans, um, access to, uh, CBD oil, as long as like a doctor on the compassionate use registry prescribes it. But Dan Patrick came out and he said in a statement to us that he's wary of any medical proposals because he's worried basically what it could lead to down the line. He didn't specify whether that would mean legalization, but he was worried about, um, medical. And then he also said basically off to the side that he was against any decrim measures. So it's kind of fascinating um, that we see this renewed m- momentum for expanding the Compassionate Use Act from both Republicans and Democrats this session. I mean, State Senator Donna Campbell is a chair in the Senate, and then the Republican Party of Texas also um, approved a plank um, wanting to improve the Compassionate Use Act. But then Dan Patrick kind of just threw a bucket of cold water on that.
0: And what I found really interesting was in the House, um our new speaker, Dennis Bonin, mm-hmm. he was a House member back in 2015 and voted against the fashion use act? Yes. Mm-hmm. But what people in his office told you that, um, or people kind of close to him told you that he wouldn't. he's not planning to block this in the House.
3: Yeah, so we saw in the House last year there was a measure to expand the Compassionate Use Act. It got the support of nearly 80 House members um, as either authors, co-authors, or joint authors, but it just didn't make it to the floor in time for a vote. And uh, Dennis Bonin, again, did not sign on to that bill last year, voted against it in 2015. But, you know, people familiar with his thinking this year said, you know, He's going to let the House do what the House wants to do. So if there's enough support to bring it to the floor, he's not going to stop that from happening. But then there's this question of, will it die in the Senate? And Dan Patrick, you know, he wasn't a definite no, I'm against medical. He just said he remains wary of such proposals. So it's very possible that it could get over to the Senate. And maybe if, you know, he has a conversation with Donna Campbell and Stephanie Click and some of the other Democrats pushing an expansion measure that he'll change his mind and come around to it.
0: Ross, what do you think it means that he's putting the statement out that isn't saying don't bother, this is dead, but that right. I have concerns?
1: You know, there's a, there are a couple of things here. You know, we did some polling with the University of Texas, um, you know, our, la- our latest poll, and uh, only 20% of Texans say never um, allow um, legalization of marijuana possession. Another 26% say medical use only, 32% say small amounts for any use, and 22% say any amount for any use. So we've got 54% of voters saying you know, go ahead and legalize it. Um, It turns out to be um, that's kind of across the board. Republicans are like that, a little bit less than Democrats, but they're positive about it. So the general public is sort of like open to this. The Republicans who have been typically against legalization have in recent years come around slowly to decriminalization. So. It wouldn't be legal, but it'd be more in the traffic ticket variety of of punishment rather than jail time, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I think Patrick's probably between those things. You know, to get back to your question, I think, you know, he's between, you know, public attitude on this is shifting and has been shifting. You know, we've been polling now for 10 years, and it's been shifting slowly in Texas as it has in other states. But Texas is going to be not, it's clearly not going to be in the vanguard on this thing and is going to wait and see what happens in other states. I think that they're that the legislature's receptivity to this is going to change if and when they need money next time. And mm. if they look at it and think, well, maybe marijuana is a, is a big cash crop and the taxes could produce a lot of income for the state. But they've got a bunch of other states to watch for signs of, you know, whether that's true or not, California, Colorado, Washington, on and on. Um, and I just think they're going to be slow about it. And I think Patrick starts, you know, in the no position – And is moving into the. I'm personally against it, but let's see what happens. So, slow thaw.
3: I thought what was interesting is I was just like looking at video archives of Dan Patrick for this story because why not? And in 2014, um, he had this little video that I was showing Ross because Dan Patrick just looks so different in 2014. And he was <laughs> saying been, that he w- been hard years. <laughs> <laughs> but he basically said that he was against medical back in 2014. And then in 2015, obviously, he let the Compassionate Use Act hit the Senate floor, you know, didn't stop it then. So it's very possible we can be in the same boat this session to where he, he's maybe personally against it but then comes around to it especially when he sees what public opinion on this is like.
1: Yeah, Stephanie Klick, uh, the house sponsor, had to had to make a fairly impassioned and emphatic speech on the house floor when they did the first one basically saying, you know, look, there's no way you can get high on this. <laughs> it's not an intoxicant, it's not it's not pot. Stop talking about pot and that's when we all learned how to say cannabinoid. Mm-hmm. Um easier to say pot, um, but, but it reflects the you know, the, the long antipathy to, to marijuana and to this is a gateway drug and all of those years of, of um, you know, anti-drug messages.
0: All right, well, but before uh, we get on to our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors, the University of Texas at Austin. Longhorns are leaders working for Texas. Learn how they are changing your world at uTexas.edu slash VibrantTexas. And Bills Up Now is a legislative tracking service that allows anyone to stay up to date on the issues that matter most without sacrificing their schedules. Schedule a demo today at BillsUpNow.com. So now let's um, talk about 2020, which uh, the past few days, something really interesting kind of revealed itself. We have um, Kamala Harris coming Friday and Saturday to Texas. She's holding her, a rally in Texas on Saturday at um, right. Texas Southern University and then the following Saturday, Beto Work is technically officially launching his campaign, whatever that means, since he <laughs> launched it last week. Got a new blue shirt. <laughs> uh, and to officially launch it, he is having big rallies, three of them, El Paso, Houston, last one in Austin, just a couple of blocks from the Texas capital. Uh, it, feels like I, it feels like this is the first time in a really long time where everyone seems to be really feeling like Texas is going to be a major player in the primary race and it's it's not like 2008 where it was like two weeks before the primary Hillary and o, Hillary Clinton and Obama realized we have to focus on Texas. Right. This is a year out and they're making a race for Texas. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, 2018 was a closer year than it has mm-hmm. been, you know, everybody had, and both parties, everybody had Texas off the map as a red state mm-hmm. and everybody, Democrats and Republicans used Texas as an ATM. I mean, it's such a mm-hmm. standard line now, come to Texas raise a bunch of money, go spend it in wherever the battlegrounds are. And 2018 raised the prospect that Texas is uh, potentially a battleground. And and because of its timing in the primary races, uh, it's it's a battleground in the Democratic primary anyway, Um, in the same way that it looked like it might be up until the last minute in 2016 when the Mm. Republicans were out running around. It turned out not to be so much, you know, but the um, Texas is early enough in the thing. There's enough Democratic candidates that they feel like um, they're going to have to contend in Texas, and um, that they want to keep the momentum, such as it is from 2018, going in their direction. The Republicans are here for the same reason, defensively.
0: Alex, you were with um, one of the two uh, Texans running for president. I believe Texas is the only state that has two candidates running for president right now. Um, I think that's right. Um, (laughs) You were with Julian Castro in Dallas just the other day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us what happened there?
3: Sure. Um, So it was at this little restaurant in Dallas. Um, Already a bad sign. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't really uh, publicize this on his website or anything like that, Um, but it was held with um, a local law firm in the area. And so Castro did this little gaggle with reporters before the event got started. And, you know, of course, everyone's asking him, you know, how do you feel about Beto? And are you scared about, like, the other Texan in the race and all that? And Castro kind of maintained that he's not. He's like, you know, look, there are more than a dozen people in this race. Even though polls have me at 1%, there's still time. And by the time voting gets around, I feel like I'm going to be in a good place. So he's really, you know, trying to out the fact that he's not nervous about Beto and some of the others in the race who are definitely getting a lot more attention than he is. Um, Another thing that I thought was interesting, he didn't really take a jab at Beto, but he's been repeatedly kind of saying that I know I'm the underdog. I, you know, I grew up on the other side of the tracks. I'm, you know, I didn't come in this being the front runner. And he said something during his speech that I thought was interesting. He's like, you know, I'm not a front runner. He's like, I bet a lot of you in this room have never felt like front runners. And those are the people I want to talk to. I want to talk to the people who feel kind of um, you know, like they're not the losers, but, you know, the people who are, (laughs) the people who, you know. Walked into a corner there. (laughs) But, you know, I want to talk to the people who, you know, maybe aren't getting all the attention right now. And I want to talk to them to make sure that America is serving them. So that was kind of his message. I mean, policy-wise, he kind of stuck to the main talking points, but he was really trying to reiterate the fact that he is the underdog and he's trying his best to um, change that by the time voting comes around.
0: You know, I've heard a lot of people especially in like texas local circles kind of like rolling their eyes at him and just feeling like we already have one big texan in the race he should just step aside but at the same time i mean how many primary how many cycles have we seen where whoever was leading in at this point is not who wins jeb bush Mm -hmm. (laughs) right right (laughs) (laughs) so he is kind of right that it doesn't it you know he wants to be the front runner Mm -hmm. next year and the timing might be good that he's not being noticed now, but there's also the question of can he even last that long?
1: I, you know, I don't think it's a Texan race. I, I, it's fascinating that they've got two Texans in it, but I don't think that's really the contest. The problem, or a problem here, is that they've got so many con- they've got so many contestants, mm-hmm. and you have to get into, you know, some group at the front of the pack. If you remember the Republican primaries in 2016, and the problem with getting on stage and getting into the middle of the stage for the debates, you know, you wanted to be one of those middle five. You know, and there was all of that tussling on the edges with, you know, Kasich can't get in or Fiorina can't get in, all those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. You don't want to be one of those candidates that's literally stuck in the wings on these debates. So you have to, in a a way that you wouldn't have to do in a two or three person race, there's a lot of positioning going on. Are you a major candidate? Do you need to be taken seriously enough? Can I get in that middle five, please? Mm -hmm. Right, and they're, you know, starting that fight really, really early. It happens that Julian Castro is from the same state as a guy who has quickly elbowed his way into that. But even Beto O'Rourke in the last set of polling that's out is well behind Biden, well behind Sanders, he's behind Harris, and he's behind Warren. So both of the Texans, to some extent, are going to be trying to elbow their way in.
0: So I've mixed up my polls, but there have been some polls where O'Rourke is ahead of Sanders and Warren. But there are also some where he's below them, too. Uh so speaking of O'Rourke, you know, we're now, it's, it's a week since he officially, or whatever, I guess, unofficially launched his campaign and spent, he spent some time in Iowa and he's in New Hampshire still. What do you think about his first week of his role, how it's gone?
1: Uh, you know, it's gone both ways. <laughs> you know, he had the, he has a bunch of press. He's coming out of a year where he built a lot of momentum. He was the phenom. Of the last cycle, he was the guy everybody in the country was paying attention to, because he raised more money in a Senate race in a red state than anybody's ever raised in a Senate race in any state, uh, so there were a lot of reasons to pay attention to him that you know weren't apparent at the beginning of that race. you know who thought that Texas would be in play? who thought that the money would be in play? Who thought that the challenger to a presidential candidate, Ted Cruz, who came pretty close, would outraise him so strongly quarter after quarter. I mean, there were a bunch of things like that going. So he comes in, sort of the phenom, he got the Vanity Fair cover, the Annie Leibovitz <laughs> photographs, you know, everything seemed to be working. But he also got into the big leagues for the first time, and, you know, the the it's tougher up there. And the competition is tougher, and there are other candidates in the race who are um, – passing around dirt on you and you know it's it's a harder game and so he had a bunch of negative stories there were a bunch of things about is this the right kind of candidate does this guy know anything does he have any experience do we really want a white guy doing this in the party as it is now he's not from the progressive wing of the party he was taking on a lot of water that he's not used to taking on last time it was just him and Ted Cruz and you know he had the great advantage of running against an incumbent that a lot of democrats were exercised about it's not the case this time democrats are out shopping and you know
0: he's just another one of the the apples in the basket i've been fascinated with just how much attention he's gotten it at, at first i thought it was kind of my like you know we're so focused on texas so of course we're seeing all this coverage of our work and it feels like it's more but i've been looking it really is more than what like elizabeth warren got in her first right. week or bernie sanders got in his first week someone mentioned to me that you already have two like jokes about of work that did not exist a week ago his hands moving and him jumping on counters like there are like multiple jokes on the internet about both of these things I'm, I'd be really surprised if SNL does not mock both of those things this weekend
3: apparently there's a Beto challenge someone was telling me when I was in Dallas they were like have you heard of that and I was like no. And they're like, yeah, you just stand on top of random surfaces. And like, <laughs> it's called like the Beto Challenge. And I have not seen this online, but this was just told to me at a Castro event. Just as a heads we're, up. We're
0: at a table here if anyone wants to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But th- th- that's like, it's only been a week. And we have those two things that have now become like jokes, but not j- jokes that also are not, don't feel like they're at his expense. they almost yeah. like you're in on the joke. I, there was nothing like that for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris. Yeah, on, and there isn't actually anything it's, they've been in the race much longer
1: on on some level of the celebrity level of this thing you know you just want to be known mm-hmm. you know and you don't and you want to be known for you know not be known as an idiot right so to some extent that's an advantage I mean if, if you're over in the corner saying hey look at me look at me and nobody's looking at you um, this beto challenge is pretty is is pretty frustrating you know you might force an otherwise normal person to jump up on a ping-pong table or something. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's at this stage of the game, the, the biggest number for a lot of these candidates in the polls, almost regardless of which poll you look for, if it's not Biden and it's not uh, Sanders and to some extent not Warren, the big number is don't really have an opinion about them yet. And mm. right now they're just trying to get public attention, get eyes on their candidacy, you know, and then after that, it's what they do with those eyes once they have them.
0: Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Texas A and M University, the Texas Association of Freestanding Emergency Centers, the University of Texas at Austin, and Bills Up Now, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Aaliyah, Alex, and our producers Michael Ray and Bobby, this is Amon. Thanks for listening.